So Mark chapter 6, we'll start in verse 14 here in a moment, and uh, something to write with and something to write on, and uh, you should be good to go today. Let me pray, and we're going to dive in. Uh, Father God, we, uh, we come wanting before you today, and the truths we have sung are beautiful and powerful and needed nourishment for our soul. And the words we study now, likewise, may they be strength for us and courage. May they be nourishment. God, may they be new life for someone today. Holy Spirit, help us to hear. Help us to believe. Help us to live according to these words of life that you've given us. Father, we're grateful to get to celebrate Father's Day today. I'm grateful for the gift of fatherhood. I pray for your peace and comfort on those for whom this day has a bit of a sting to it. Uh, And Lord, lift our eyes to you, our Heavenly Father. And in you, let us find comfort and joy that surpasses every heartache in every situation. Lord, I'm mindful of my brother Pete DeAngelis this morning who awaits word later today from Winthrop Street Baptist Church as to uh, the results of their vote on his pastor candidacy. So we continue to pray for peace for Pete and Sammy and wisdom for our brothers and sisters in Taunton that your good and glorious will would be done. Father, feed us now as we come to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, we're in Mark chapter six. Uh, Last week, if you were with us, I gave you a little bit of homework. I wanna do some follow-up before we jump into our passage today. So if you remember last week, uh, in studying Jesus sending out his disciples, we talked about how we too are sent on mission. We're to live our lives as those who are sent. I gave you the challenge To think about the week ahead. Who are the people you would be encountering? Where would you be seeing them? Where would be your opportunities to have gospel conversations? So I'm going to ask for a show of hands. I'm going to ask for a show of hands uh, here in a second. Who of you in the past week were able to have some sort of a gospel conversation? What I mean by that is you had not just a pleasant exchange with, say, a neighbor or a coworker, but you had something, a, a conversation that was distinctly Christ-like in some way. You invited them to church, you asked them about their uh, spiritual background, you discussed matters of Christianity. So homework time, time to turn it in, show of hands, how many of you this past week were able to have a gospel conversation? All right, that's good. Better than no hands. (laughs) But next week, we're going to do better. We're going to do better. That challenge to be on mission with Christ and to speak to people about Him doesn't exist just in one passage on one Sunday for one week. So this week, we've got a great opportunity. Let's have some more hands raised next Sunday when we come together, all right? One of our family's favorite movies, and probably one of your favorite movies, is called The Princess Bride. It is a classic. If you don't like it, I don't need your evil in my life. It is a great, great movie. Uh, there's a, it's so quotable and there's so many great scenes, but the scene that I have in mind this morning is when uh, our two main characters, Wesley and Buttercup, 
are being chased by the bad guys, and they flee for safety into the dreaded fire swamp. And the fire swamp has a reputation of being horrible and killing everything that goes into it. And that's where they have to go to escape the bad guys that are pursuing them. Buttercup is afraid, but Wesley soothes her by naming the three dangers of the fire swamp. Uh, They are one, fire spouts, two, not quicksand, but lightning sand, and then three, rodents of unusual size uh, whose existence is not well documented and quite suspect, to be frank with you. So these are the three dangers he espouses to her, and then his conclusion is, you know, when, when you know how to navigate these things, the fire swamp really isn't that bad. It's not summer home material, but it's not that bad altogether. And then he gets attacked by a rodent of unusual size. That aside, uh, what he illustrates for us is a similar role that our passage we're going to study today does for us as well. Wesley dispels danger. He names the danger and charts a way through it. He gives comfort to Buttercup because she knows what the dangers are, how serious they are, and what the answer is to navigating around those dangers. Our passage, Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, serves a similar purpose. It's a word of caution and encouragement. It exposes danger and gives courage to the reader. I want you to look down at chapter 6 with me in your Bible, and I want you to notice how oddly placed this story is. Our story today is about the death of John the Baptist. If you're looking in your Bible, it may have verses 14 through 29 sectioned off as a singular unit. That's right. But I want you to look at verses 12 and 13. Put your eyes on them. Look at how the passage before ends. It says, they went out, that's the disciples, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Now skip ahead to verse 30. Look at what verse 30 says. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. So you could take this story about the death of John the Baptist and pull it out of chapter 6 entirely, connect verse 13 to verse 30, and it would be a perfect fit. It's kind of weird that this story about John the Baptist is just dropped right here in the middle of this story of Jesus sending the disciples and then the disciples coming back and reporting to Jesus what has gone on. So why is it here? Why is it that the story of John's death is sandwiched by the story of Jesus sending his disciples and the disciples returning and telling Jesus what's happened? Well, If you will hop in the way back machine with me, and we go back to the opening days of this study of Mark, I want you to think about the historical setting. What's going on around Mark's world whenever he writes this story, this account of the life and ministry of Jesus? We think Mark writes near the middle of the first century, early, middle, first century. And uh, he gives this account for the sake of Christians who are suffering under persecution in Rome. It's an exceedingly difficult time to be a Christian when Mark writes this account. Persecution is rampant. The number of believers is relatively small. There's some big moments for sure, but still on the whole, uh, the number of believers is relatively small. The power of Rome is unmatched. 
I want you to imagine how small you would feel as a Christian in Rome, where your allegiance to Jesus Christ has cost you perhaps your job, your freedom, your house, maybe even family members. It's hard to be a Christian in Rome at the time that Mark writes this account of the life of Jesus. But he wants to encourage these feeble Christians to let them see and hear from Jesus what it means to be his follower. So what must it have been like if you're in that little group of believers and to receive this story and to sit and read about Jesus' life, to see Jesus healing every sickness, casting out demons, he calms the storm, he raises the dead. Not only does he do all those amazing things, but think of everything you see Jesus endure. He is thought to be crazy by his own family. He's rejected in his hometown. The religious authorities are plotting to kill him. And then sandwiched in between this story of the disciples' mission is the account of John's execution. So why is John's story placed here? Well, the placement of this story is meant to give courage to God's people who are called upon to sacrifice greatly for the sake of the gospel. It's as if John is telling the reader, don't lose focus of what is required of you and don't be afraid to count the cost. Jesus is sending you. You will go and speak and do great things. And in the midst of that, for some of you, it will cost dearly. The gospel will advance through the death of God's messengers. This passage calls for courage. Courage is that trait we call upon when the battle rages and the enemy seems to have the upper hand. When the cost of following Jesus intensifies, that's when we need courage. And the trait goes by many different names, perhaps bravery or perseverance or endurance or boldness. But courage emerges from one place and one place only. Courage doesn't come from your strength, your abilities, yourself. Strength comes from faith in Jesus Christ. So Mark gives us this story so that we would believe in Jesus and then be courageous in our mission to make him known. That's the premise I'm working from this morning, that the intention of this story is to put courageous faith into the life of the believer. So my goal then for us today is to emerge from our time together with courageous faith. Courageous faith presses forward in the spread of the gospel no matter the cost. We want to ask ourselves, are we people of courageous faith? So I want to show you from this story three different characteristics of this type of faith, this boldness in the face of great intensity. Follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14. Remember, Jesus has sent out the disciples. They're out preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and doing miracles. Verse 14, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying... John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. 
For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to, because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to share with you from this passage three characteristics of courageous faith. What does it look like? How do I know I am functioning in this type of faith? First of all, courageous faith speaks against evil. Courageous faith speaks against evil in verses 17 through 20. I want us to take a moment and clarify the names in our story. There's a lot of names bouncing around here. And it will be a bit helpful if we can try to make some sense of the Herodian family tree. The Herodian family tree is convoluted and horrifically incestuous. Uh, It's said of Herod's family tree that it looked like a telephone pole. That's uh, straight with no branches. Not a funny joke, but it's a joke nonetheless. So our main character is a guy named Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is one of many sons born to the leader Herod the Great. You might remember Herod the Great. He's the one who is the governor over the world around where Jesus lives at the time of Jesus' birth. He's the one whom the wise men come to in search of the newborn king. He's the one that uh, calls for the, the massacre of the innocents. He was a prolific builder. He was incredibly wealthy. He was a very influential man. The way the Roman Empire ruled their vast kingdom was by appointing governors over individual regions. And so the emperor of Rome sat at the top of the hierarchy, but then he had these governors in these different regions. Herod the Great was a governor over this region that included Judea, uh, all of this Palestine area. When Herod the Great died, his many sons by his many wives then took up uh, his mantle of leadership. His region was divided into four different chunks, and those chunks were given to four different sons. Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, was made ruler over two regions, 
Those regions are Galilee. We've talked about that a lot in our study of Mark. And the other region is called Perea. Perea is south and east of Galilee, and it runs north and south along the eastern border of the Jordan River. So Herod Antipas has control or rulership, governorship, over those two regions, Galilee and Perea, the two primary places of the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist. So it's no surprise that verse 14 would open and say Herod heard about these things. He hears about it because his his whole little kingdom there is in an uproar over the things Jesus is saying and the miracles Jesus is doing. So Herod the Great had ten wives. Uh, my wife Melissa and I, uh, we know a man in a Muslim culture who has eight wives, and he gave us this tidbit of advice. He said, the more wives a man has, the lonelier he is. That's a good piece of advice. So, that's why I'm the husband of one wife. That's enough. I'm enough for her. I don't know what I'm talking about. So... <laughs> Herod the Great has ten wives. By one wife, he has a son named Aristobulus. Aristobulus gets married, and he has a daughter and names her Herodias. Herod the Great, by another wife, has another son named Philip. Philip marries Herodias, his half-brother's daughter. Philip and Herodias have a daughter named Salome. Herod Antipas looks upon his half-brother's wife with favor and takes her as his own. So Herodias was to Herod his niece, his sister-in-law, and his wife. Salome was Herod's niece, his great-niece, also his private dancer. Aristobulus was Herod's brother, half-brother, also Herod's father-in-law, and also grandfather to Herod's new girlfriend, Salome. Mari Povich's head would explode. <laughs> so it's a gross scene. And here's the problem. Leviticus 18.16 says, do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. And John will not be silent when a ruler who claims to belong to God's people takes part in such a grotesque act of immorality. John speaks for holiness. In verse 18, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He speaks for holiness against evil. And he does so at the expense of his own freedom and ultimately at the expense of his life. John, with courageous faith, speaks holiness into evil. And this is the way it must be for God's people. For the gospel to advance. For holiness to be secure. For us to uphold the word of God, we must be ready and willing with courageous faith to speak holiness and the evil against all the powers of this world. We have a mild but appropriate example of this just in this past week. This past week, 
a, a group of conservative religious leaders wrote a joint letter to our president. And the opening paragraph says this. As evangelical leaders representing tens of thousands of local churches, campus communities, and ministries, we are concerned that the new zero-tolerance policy at the U.S.-Mexico border, recently announced by Attorney General Sessions and being implemented by the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security, has had the effect of separating vulnerable children from their parents. As head of the executive branch of the federal government, we are writing to ask you to resolve this situation of families being separated that you yourself have rightly described as horrible. So conservative religious leaders send this letter to the president because when immigrants come to our southern border seeking asylum, the policy is to remove children from their families in a way of deterring people from coming to the border altogether. Franklin Graham spoke holiness into evil this week when he said of this policy, I think it's disgraceful, it's terrible to see families ripped apart, and I don't support that one bit. We are affiliated as a church with the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention met last week for its annual meeting, and on Tuesday, the Southern Baptist Convention passed a resolution calling for immigration reform that maintains, quote, the priority of family unity. The resolution called for secure borders and also stated, we declare that any form of nativism, mistreatment, or exploitation is inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When God's people see evil, even at the highest levels, they call it out in courageous faith. Attorney General Sessions defended the administration's policies this week by saying, I would cite to you the Apostle Paul and his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of government because God has ordained the government for his purposes. He's right. Romans 13.1 tells us to submit to governing authorities because they've been established by God. So that's why we pray for our leaders and that's why we pay our taxes. That's why we obey the law. However, God's purposes for his appointed leaders never involves sin. And submission to governing authorities never requires condoning sin. And so, when the leaders of our land transgress the laws of God, God's people raise our voices against that evil and that sin. And this is the way it has always been for us, and we've honored Romans 13 the whole time. We raise our voices against abortion, against corruption of all kinds, and now against the weaponization of Latino children as a result of our nation's decades-long dysfunctional immigration policies. We have a long history of standing against the sinfulness of leaders. Moses opposed Pharaoh. Ehud, the left-handed man, pierced Eglon. Esther stood against Haman. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego defied King Nebuchadnezzar to his face. Jonah spoke judgment to the king of Nineveh. And don't forget the prophet Nathan who called out the sin of King David. Every political leader has opportunity for this kind of rebuke. This is not a one-party thing, a one-leader thing. But it is the course of action for God's people in all times, in all types of governments, to hold primary allegiance to the Word of God and to be courageous in speaking holiness against evil.
John did what God's people have always done. He named evil, and then he lost his freedom. Wouldn't it have been better if he just shut his mouth? Couldn't he have done so much more good if, if he would have just been quiet and not angered Herodias or, or issued some sort of an apology or just, hey, no, no, I don't know what you heard. That, that's not entirely correct. Wouldn't it have been better for everyone if John would have remained alive? The problem is this. Courageous faith doesn't stand for holiness out of convenience or only when it's profitable. That's why it's courageous faith, not capitulating faith. It takes courage and bravery and boldness to stand against evil and injustice in all of its forms, in all of its manifestations. So whether that's a voice on a national stage or it's a driveway conversation, it takes courageous faith to speak against evil or simply just to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. So if you're Jesus' disciple, you are called to keep on going, to stay faithful in your worship of Christ to keep on refusing to bow to the latest idol. And who knows what kind of hatred might fall on you or what threats will be made against you. But after evil does its worst, the church of Jesus Christ will still be there standing on its feet. Evil doesn't win. Courageous faith speaks against evil and triumphs over it. Here's a second characteristic of courageous faith you need to know. Courageous faith entrusts everything to Jesus, entrusts everything to Jesus. That means in every situation, every crisis, every critical moment, I am anchoring myself in Jesus Christ. No matter the cost, no matter the threat, I cling to him. John the Baptist is killed in such a sad and such a stupid scenario. If we were making up the story about John the Baptist, we would have him go down in a different way, some blaze of glory and all kinds of uh, incredibleness, not at the whims of a teenage girl and an ignorant provincial ruler. Verse 21 tells us the opportune time came. It's the opportune time for Herodias, not so much for John. Herod is hosting all these dignitaries in celebration of his birthday. This type of celebration involved lots of alcohol and lots of bad decisions. And at some point during the festivities, Herodias' daughter Salome came in and danced for Herod and his guests. We're not told explicitly the kind of dancing she did, but it's implied that it was a seductive dance that drunk men found enticing. It was so enticing that Herod stupidly promised her to give her anything she wanted. Now, it's obvious hyperbole on Herod's part. It's, he wouldn't really hand over half of his kingdom to this teenage girl because of her dancing. But it's, it's an act of bravado. It's him saying to her, I'm the king. I can do anything I want. It's him saying to his guests, look at the power that I have and uh, look at all that I can do. So the girl runs to her mother, asks for advice, and her mother, without hesitation, says, ask for John's head. And when Salome returns to Herod, she asks for John's head, but she adds a flourish to it of her own. I want his head on a platter immediately. Her request seems to have a sobering effect on Herod. 
because he realizes he's in a difficult situation. He has protected John. He likes John. He knows John is a holy man, not deserving of death. But he has mouthed off in front of these dignitaries. And if he does not keep his word, he will lose face. He will lose honor in front of these people. And so in this situation, ego wins over ethics. John is executed, and his head is presented first to Salome and then to her mother, Herodias. The martyrdom of John illustrates the ultimate cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship is a theme that Jesus will expand on in the following chapters in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus will teach that anyone who wants to be his disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him in chapter 8. Also, he'll teach that whoever saves their life will lose their soul, but whoever gives up their life for the sake of the gospel will save their soul. And so by giving up his life, John shows himself to be the model disciple. Now, does this mean that we all will follow in John's fate? Not at all. We're not all appointed by God for persecution or martyrdom. Still, We should think of our lives with very little attachment to this world and supreme confidence in Jesus Christ. You may be familiar with the uh, German pastor, theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed by Nazis. He wrote a book by a similar name that we've been using this morning called The Cost of Discipleship. And I agree with him when he writes on this point. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. In the fellowship of the crucified and glorified body of Christ, we participate in his suffering and glory. No greater glory could have been granted to his own. No higher privilege can the Christian enjoy than to suffer for Christ. Blessed is he whom God deems worthy to suffer for the body of Christ. Such suffering is joy indeed, enabling the believer to boast that he bears the dying of Jesus Christ and the marks of Christ in his body. There is nothing new in all this. We are simply following in the steps of the first disciples of Christ. We must hold our lives with little attachment to this world an extreme trust in Jesus Christ. The reality is that the gospel will not go forward to the ends of the earth apart from the radical sacrifice of Christ's messengers. I recently downloaded an app on my phone. It's by an organization called the Joshua Project. I would recommend it to you. The name of the app is called Unreached of the Day. Unreached of the day. What it does every day, if if I don't look at it on my own, it prompts me with a profile of the unreached people group of the day. And it's meant to make you pray for that specific people group and uh, for the work that needs to happen among them. So, uh, for example, today's people group are the Sahrawi of Algeria. I learned this morning that they have a population of a little over 200,000 people, not a very big people group at all. They used to live in Western Sahara, 
But then in 1975, Morocco invaded Western Sahara and took control of it. And this people group fled to neighboring Algeria. And since 1975, they've lived as refugees in Algeria. And because of this, their situation is largely unknown. They're almost invisible on the world stage. It's estimated that they have a Christian population of 0.01%. They are predominantly Muslim. And they will not hear the gospel of Jesus Christ apart from Christians who are willing to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel. The spread of the gospel is not a neat, tidy Sunday morning affair. It is men and women of God saying yes to the call of the Holy Spirit to let go of every worldly good in pursuit of souls where the enemy reigns and God's precious people are enslaved in sin. He will not let them go easily, not in Algeria and not on the South Shore. The mission of Jesus Christ is not a neat and tidy affair. It requires blood. It will take the death of many as it has for so many centuries for the gospel of Jesus Christ to go around the world. Should we be afraid of suffering for Christ? Should we be fearful of dying for our faith? Absolutely not. Because you already have everything you need to make it, even if you die, even if the messenger dies in such a stupid way. You've got everything you need to make it. Your duty is clear and your future is settled. And so you live your life in faithfulness to the Lord without any regrets. You live your entire life in faithfulness to him and then you die and you rest and you enter eternal glory. And that's what the life of the messenger of the gospel is like for every messenger of the gospel. We live We're faithful, we endure, we die. Then we open our eyes to see our eternal Savior in his incredible glory. That should be enough to get us through, to fuel our courageous faith that we would take on every threat, even at the risk of our own lives, to see the gospel expand around the world. Courageous faith speaks holiness into evil. Courageous faith entrusts everything to Jesus in every situation. One last characteristic, courageous faith is vindicated by Jesus. If you're keeping track, we actually started our note-taking in verse 17, not verse 14. Because by the time verse 14 is recorded, John is already dead. So verse 14 says, King Herod heard about this, right? He hears about the ministry and the teachings of Jesus and the disciples. For Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in in him. Others say he's Elijah. Others say he's like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. This is the only way Herod can make sense of the power of Jesus' ministry, the miracles he's doing, is to say, oh, he's, he's come back with powers from the grave. Herod's haunted by his mistreatment of John. 
and he can't make sense of what he's seeing. What's amazing to you and I as people with more knowledge than Herod is that when we study this passage, there's incredible parallels between the death of John and the death of Jesus. So Jesus is kind of like John in that there are many parallels, and Herod might have been smart enough to see some parallels, but he doesn't know enough to make sense of what he sees. You see, John's role is not just as a model follower of Jesus. He's a forerunner of the Messiah, and his death serves as the foreshadowing and the preview of Jesus' own arrest and crucifixion. A writer named Mark Strauss that lays out all the incredible parallels, and other writers do as well. Uh, But they draw out these parallels between Jesus and John. Both Jesus and John are arrested for challenging the powers that be. Both are put to death by self-seeking rulers who know their victims are innocent, but vacillate under pressure and choose expediency over justice. The bodies of both are taken and buried by sympathetic followers. After John's death, rumors arise that he's risen from the dead, but Jesus actually does rise from the dead. This theme is carried forward in John's public ministry as well. John says that the one who will come after him is so much greater than he that John's not worthy to unlatch his sandals. We read that this morning. While John baptizes with water, Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. We read that this morning. John must increase, or excuse me, decrease while Jesus must increase. So here are these parallels where in John we see a preview of the death of Jesus Christ and the difference of the death of Jesus Christ. What's the difference? When John dies, he's dead. When Jesus dies, he lives again. Three days later, the stone over that tomb rolls away and Jesus walks out. Not a ghost, not a vapor, flesh and bone glorified body, scars visible. He's conquered death and he lives evermore. When we interpret all situations of suffering, all situations of persecution, situations of martyrdom through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, there will be no hesitation on the part of the church to press forward. No hesitation at all. If the resurrection defines our view of things, then to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If it requires my life, so be it. If it requires an awkward conversation just with my neighbor next door, I'll be brave enough to do that because the resurrection defines my reality, the situation in which I live and the situation in which I share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that no matter what I suffer, I am vindicated by Jesus Christ. I don't need honor from the world. I don't need a parade. Like John, so many of God's people have died senseless deaths and not one has been foolish or wasted because Christ vindicates his children. So this is where we find the true essence of discipleship in following Christ's model, always in service to him. It's a willingness to give up one's life, not for our own glory, but for the glory of Jesus Christ. So courageous faith has been on display this morning. That's been our theme. And from Mark 6, we've learned several things about it. That courageous faith is required to speak truth into power, holiness into evil, 
Courageous faith empowers us to lay down our lives for the gospel. Courageous faith is never a losing proposition. Christ vindicates his servants. Now, if we're not careful, we might make the mistake of assuming that courageous faith is reserved only for the most daring situations, that it's somehow different in degree from everyday faith. But I would disagree. I would say courageous faith is needed and is evidenced in so many commonplace situations. Courageous faith is needed in a marriage that is fractured to the point of breaking. It takes courage to choose love, to find help, to ask for prayer, to forgive and heal. Courageous faith is needed to be the kind of dad who prioritizes his time and words with his kids. Sometimes our work schedules are beyond our control, and other times they're not beyond our control. And we try to justify our long hours away from the family as a sign of our love and sacrifice for them. But when it is under our control and we choose the hours over the family, we've made a cowardly choice, not a courageous choice. What your kid needs more from you is not your pay stub, it's your face. It's your ear, it's your time, it's your hug. As far as as it is up to you, Dad, eat with your family. Don't let every conversation with your kid be one that has correction in it. Read your Bible in front of them and read your Bible with them and pray with them. That's real courage. Those who are widowed practice courageous faith to daily press forward with life while negotiating grief. This last Sunday, our church exercised courageous faith when we voted to press forward with our partnership to replant First Baptist Situate. So I would dare say that courageous faith is status quo faith for followers of Jesus. What if you're not a follower of Jesus? Well, then you came to church on the right day. Oftentimes, a a Christian sales pitch comes with so many promises of all the good and ease and success that will come your way if you'll just say yes to Jesus. And it is true that when you've been saved from the penalty of your sin by Jesus, you do live an abundant life defined by immovable joy and the blessings of Christ. However, the Christian life is not an easy life. Whoever would tell you otherwise likely has a book to sell or a private jet to put fuel in, and they want your money for it. The Christian life is not a pain-free life. You are not inoculated from sin and suffering. That's what we've seen. If John the Baptist, the last of the prophets, the forerunner of the Messiah, if his life would be called of him, what could be called of you? The difficulties of life don't disappear just because you're a Christian, but rather being a Christian means you're modeling your life after your crucified Savior. And so if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you have to count the cost. You don't come to Jesus so you can just go to heaven one day and be with fill in the blank. You come to Jesus so that the penalty of your sin is removed, and in gratitude and new life, you live for the sake of his name, no matter the cost. And there won't be a single day of your life that you would regret that, not one. Just before Jesus' death, he spoke to his disciples about the days to come, how hard they would be, and how they would make it through. 
The hardships he spoke of were alarming to his disciples, but he calmed them with these words. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. May his people press on with courageous faith. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we confess that all too often we define our days by the crisis at hand. And that's just natural to us because these crises are real. The pressure is intense. The way through is often cloudy. But God, help us to view our crises through the lens of the resurrection so that courageous faith might be our guide in all of these things. Lord, draw us to you this morning, the one who bore our sin, the one who suffered the wrath of God for the sin of mankind, the one who laid down everything so that we could be saved. Let us find our strength and our hope in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Would you draw friends to you today that don't know you in this way, who may be spiritual, who may even have a religious background, but have never trusted in Christ, his death and resurrection for their own salvation. Lord, would you do that work this morning? And for my brothers and sisters in the faith, help us to learn from John that in the midst of our mission to spread the gospel, to alleviate suffering, it will cost us dearly. Help us to count that cost, to be willing to sacrifice it all, to leave everything behind, to press ahead in the mission you have given us in the confidence of faith in Jesus Christ. In this way, may the people of the South Shore hear the gospel and be drawn at your call. And in this way, may the people of Boston hear the gospel and be drawn to your call. And Father, in this way, may the people, the Sawahari people in Algeria hear the gospel through the going and the sacrifice of your messengers with the gospel for the sake of your glory and their salvation. Lord, let us live in this way with a radical, courageous faith, eyes focused on you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.